get through one lesson in one class because that's all we have left. So we're going to go ahead and get going this morning. Are there any announcements or prayer requests this morning? Many of y'all probably got the announcement via email or have heard that uh, Brian's mother did pass away, uh, Miss Elaine, down in Florida. And I know they'll be heading down there, I guess, this week. Um, Doug sent out the arrangements. I don't remember what they were. Brian, what are they? Is it Tuesday? Friday. Okay. So, uh, funeral will be Friday down in uh, outside, I guess outside Orlando. It's the best way to describe it. It's down in uh, Florida. Keep them and their family in your prayers as they travel. And Anything else? Any other announcements or prayer requests this morning? I'll make this a uh, quick announcement with regard to, uh, and, and I know Mark's going to get up and reiterate this this morning. We're going to be doing door knocking next Sunday. So please try to be here if you can. And the more people we have, the better, because we are hoping to try and canvas uh, as much as we can in the local communities and hand out prayer request cards from them and to try and solicit anything that they, we might be able to help them with, as well as try to uh, encourage them to come to services on June the 11th. Uh, June the 11th, it's not necessarily a special Sunday by any means. Scott Lockwood is going to be preaching that morning. We're just trying to push uh, and encourage them to come and attend services with us on the 11th. And then that evening, we're going to have a special prayer service on the uh, evening of the 11th, uh, focusing especially on the needs of our community and other things that may come to our attention. So uh, keep that in your prayers. If you can come out and help, that would be wonderful. Uh, if you cannot walk and cannot do a lot of the, the door knocking but would like to be back here at the church building for any kind of support, that would be good. Uh, if we have enough, we may need some people driving people around or something. So, um, you know, if you can, uh, can volunteer, see Mark or Billy about that, and they'll try to get you in a place where you can help assist and do things uh, to help with that cause. Uh, we have got VBS coming up. VBS has been changed, uh, and I'm sure that announcement's going to be announced either tonight or today or next week probably, but uh, instead of doing a Sunday through Wednesday VBS this year, we have decided to do a one-day VBS on June the 24th, and on June the 24th, we'll have a one-day VBS. We'll, we'll primarily have kids' classes from K-4 to 6th grade. But what we are doing is we are encouraging all of the community to come out at 12.30 for a community cookout. So we're trying to reach out to those in our community. We, we need members to be there. So please mark your calendars for June the 24th. And that's our VBS, but really primarily for you, since we're not going to have an adult class, since it's only going to be for kids on that one day. But uh, on the 24th, mark your calendars. We need you to sign up to be a part of the community cookout to be here. We need to get a number of those who will be attending so make sure to have enough hot dogs and whatever else we're cooking out. But uh, uh, just put that on your calendars and on your radars if you can, please. It's a, it's a, we're trying to utilize VBS to reach out to our community better. And this was an idea that we had to be able to encourage the community to come in and have a, a lunch on us but also for us hopefully to reach out to them to see what their needs might be and see if we can encourage them and, and hopefully start some Bible studies if possible around us. So 
Mark your calendars, June the 24th will be our VBS day, and then that afternoon at 1230, we'll have a community cookout that everyone is invited to. All right, let's start off uh, with a word of prayer before we get going. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful and thankful for all the things that you've given us and blessed us with. And God, we are thankful for another first day of the week that we can gather together as your family, that we can open up your word, study from it, learn from it, and be challenged from the words that you have inspired through your spirit. God, we are thankful for all that you've given uh, us in this creation around us. This time of year, we're able to see the beauty of everything as it blooms and blossoms and grows. And, and God, we're so thankful for uh, the wonderful creation that surrounds us, that lets us see the, the, majest, the majesty and the, uh, the all, awesome power that you have. And we are thankful for those things. God, we are thankful for your word. We're so thankful for Jesus, for him coming and dying for us in our place and for him to uh, give us the example and the lessons that he did. And then once he left, that your spirit came here on the earth to be able to encourage and edify and build up the church and continues to help us with the inspired word today to know what your will is and know all those things that uh, we need to be doing. We are thankful for all the many things spiritually that we have in Christ Jesus, and it's through his name that we pray. Amen. As I said, I'm going to attempt to speed through one lesson in one class, and it's, it's a really simple lesson too, Terry. It's on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I mean, that's a very simple topic. I think it's very straightforward for everyone, uh, and I say that with sarcasm if you don't know that. Um, I have two books up here, which I will probably try to, I don't know if I'll refer to them or not, but as I read and study and go through things, two brethren that I greatly admire, never, no, I never met in either one of them. Uh, they both passed away before I was able to meet them, Gus Nichols and Guy and Woods. Uh, I've watched videos, so I feel like I've met them. I've listened to lectures uh, that, that have been recorded when they were living. Uh, I've met Brother Gus's son, Flavel Nichols. Y'all may know Brother Flavel. Uh, Gus, of course... Uh, was from Jasper, Alabama, was there pretty much his entire life. He grew up there and preached there and was a mainstay for the Sixth Avenue congregation in Jasper. But the guy in Woods, of course, was a faithful a gospel preacher. He was an attorney. I kind of have that admiration for him because he was a lawyer. Uh, but he was also the editor of the Gospel Advocate for many years. And Guy in Woods and Gus Nichols did not agree 100% on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I say that to, to preface this class. I'm not going to have all the answers for you. Uh, what I hope to lay out for you is general understanding of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as we go through this, hopefully it will prod you into doing some more studying and more thinking. There are some things that we can know about the indwelling of the Spirit. There's some things that I think that are a little bit perplexing and somewhat still of a mystery to us uh, because of the spiritual nature of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Uh, is, that's going to be my stance, <laughs> and I'm sticking to it. Uh, with regard to the Holy Spirit. But there are some things that we look around the world today where people have talked about being full or being, uh, having the Holy Spirit within them that obviously uh, I believe the Bible contradicts. And I want to get into some of those kind of things just to, to pinpoint and kind of look at some of the things that the indwelling is not. We'll look at some of the distinctions that the Bible and, and that God has given us with regard to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and several other things uh, with regard to the indwelling as we go through this lesson, uh, this last lesson of our series this quarter. This is the last Sunday of this quarter. Next Sunday, I believe Scott Lockwood's teaching the book of John, I believe, starting next week in here for the next quarter. 
so he'll be starting next Sunday with the Gospel of John. And uh, it'll be a wonderful class if you want to join the auditorium class. The other classes, I'm not sure all of the speakers there. I've got some by email, but I don't think we've put it in the bulletin yet. So look in the bulletin this week and you'll see those. Um, but again, this, this really becomes what a lot of people call the great mystery for Christians when it, when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And a lot of conversation that Christians have about the Holy Spirit almost funnel through and come to this question with regard to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because it's something that is not as concretely known or spelled out for us in Scripture. And so that's why I say it's the great mystery and uh, really how does the Holy Spirit dwell within Christians uh, is the question that uh, most of us have. And unfortunately, I may not be able to give you a concrete 100% answer for that question. That's why it still becomes, I believe, somewhat of a great mystery for us uh, with regard to the dwelling of the, uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. Real quick, before we move on in this class, I want to review a couple of points that have a little bearing uh, in this class as we think about uh, the, uh, the things that we have discussed regarding the Holy Spirit. First of all, remember the Holy Spirit was given in various measures to men. We've seen those examples in our previous lessons. If you've missed any of those, you're welcome to download the audio online. I also have the handouts or just see me and I'd love to uh, share those with you. Uh, we see the Holy Spirit's gifts as we concluded the lesson last week are the miraculous and the ordinary. So you have kind of two different types of gifts if you want to classify them as that. And again, as I said last week, I'm not comfortable really saying anything about the Holy Spirit's ordinary. I think everything about the Spirit is extraordinary. But with respect to our human thinking and our mindset as we think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there are indeed things that are extraordinary. We would also call them miraculous because they go against the nature that God has established, the natural order of things that we have in this world. Then you have those things which would be considered as being ordinary. Uh, individuals who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Paul, uh, as Peter talked about in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, as we think about their baptism, everybody there that was baptized of the thousands were not indicated that they had miraculous gifts because they had the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that argues, and I believe gives conclusive proof to the fact that there is an ordinary measure, there's an ordinary gift of the Holy Spirit that we can enjoy or that was enjoyed in the scriptures specifically and I believe can be enjoyed even today because the, the extraordinary or miraculous is no longer needed as we talked about last week in the conclusion of our lesson. There are certain reasons and purposes behind the miraculous uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, those extraordinary gifts and that we see in the New Testament. Those, those needs and necessities have moved on. They're no longer there. Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, the perfect, when the perfects come, those things which were kind of the, the, the bulwark or the, uh, the scaffolding for uh, what was to come, that, those things are done away with. And so the perfect, we now have the scriptures. We have the inspired word of God from the Spirit. So we no longer need these extraordinary and miraculous gifts any longer to show conclusive proof of the authority of God. And then also want to just kind of underscore here that today what we have seen in our previous lessons and what we've talked about is that the Holy Spirit only works in conjunction with and by the scriptures to lead, direct, and sanctify believers. You can go through the scriptures. You can talk about what the Spirit does today. And what you see is that when those miraculous things were fulfilled, when the apostles died and were no longer able to transmit and give the ability to do miraculous gifts any longer, uh, the, the, the natural gifts of the Holy Spirit or the ordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, may still exist. However, the Spirit's only going to work 
in conjunction with His inspired Word now. Why? Because it is the perfect Word of God. Uh, God's Word, His will has been perfected within the Scriptures that He's inspired and given to man. And so the Holy Spirit will work only with and through and in conjunction with whatever phrase you want to use with the Word of God. And so you see those things. There's not a miraculous use of the Holy Spirit. There's not a miracles being performed by individuals because they have this miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures don't support that. Uh, and in fact, the arguments that we laid out last week as we concluded class helped us understand an idea, the, the concept that um, the Spirit, although being with us, there's only a work that is done in conjunction with His Word now. Uh, there is no other indication or evidence that he works in any other way. And so I wanted to make sure and emphasize those points as we're moving into the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Think of the certainty of the, the Holy Spirit. Real quickly, as you think of the indwelling of the Spirit, there's a couple of points to be made about the indwelling. We kind of jump right to the question of how does he indwell before we even talk about does he indwell. And so real quickly as we think about a little introductory type of comments and introductory points here, the idea of the certainty of the indwelling is given in scriptures. There's multiple scriptures that talk about the spirit being received by Christians and dwelling within them. And we have talked about different things in the past as we've alluded to the indwelling of the Spirit. But real quickly, what you see, first of all, is inspiration uh, anticipated the indwelling. It's prophesied by prophets in the Old Testament dealing with the idea of the coming of the Spirit and those things which the Spirit would be uh, a part of and, and, and help with. Ezekiel, real quick. Uh, you're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you want to flip over there with me, do a little Old Testament Scripture real quick, verse 27 of chapter 36. Uh, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now again, if you look back, it's a prophecy of, of Ezekiel here, but it would be the Lord of God speaking through Ezekiel, claiming these things that he's going to give the spirit or his spirit into the people. And again, if you also flip over to Zechariah, uh, which is, of course, the next to last book of the Old Testament. You're going to see there in chapter, tw chapter 12, verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and, all, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Again, Zechariah indicating there the pouring out of his spirit upon all of Jerusalem there, an allusion to the forecoming of the Holy Spirit and the idea that the spirit will be with the people, especially those of the house of David, it says there in verse 10. So we see inspiration anticipating the coming of the spirit and in fact, the, the indwelling of the Spirit, as we read in Ezekiel, very specific there, that the Spirit will be within the, 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 His people. You also see, though, that Jesus promised the Spirit uh, there to obedient saints. In the book of John, which you'll be studying next quarter in here, there in, in John chapter 7, in verses 38 through 39, uh, Jesus Himself says here in verse 38, We'll just start actually on verse 37. Now on the last day of the great day of feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, what was he talking about? It says, therefore, that's what he's talking about there in verse 39. And it says, but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And again, very deep thoughts there. There's some very deep study that you could really go into from verses 38 and 39 there of chapter seven. But what it indicates to us is Jesus is promising those who believe will be able to have the, the rivers of living water flowing within them. And what is that? That's the Spirit, it says in verse 39. So Jesus himself spoke of the fact of his Spirit being with the people. And then ultimately what we see and what really couches this debate more than anything is the speaking of the apostles that would teach these things, especially the Apostle Paul as he spoke in his letters. Uh, there are two different individuals uh, and different groups of people there in the New Testament. You'll see especially in Romans chapter 8. Uh, and we're going to get back to Romans 8 later on because it's a very key uh, section of scripture dealing with the spirit but Romans chapter 8 verses 9 through 11 you're going to see there uh, Paul says however you are not in the flesh but in the spirit if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ he does not belong to him if, if Christ is in you though the body is dead because of sin yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, I don't know how many more dwells you need in the scripture there, but you got multiple ones there talking about the spirit, Paul says, dwelled within the Christians there, the saints there in Rome, as he spoke to them about who uh, and what the, the difference between the flesh and the spirit and, and trying to help differentiate between those two, trying to uh, let them understand the fact that Christ, uh, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God, it's very interesting to think about all three persons of deity are actually described here in verses 9 through 11 uh, because he's talking about the spirit of Christ the spirit of he who raised uh, the son from the dead that would be the spirit of God and then of course you have the spirit and so it's very interesting to kind of see the unity there within verses 9 through 11 of the dwelling of God through the spirit in the Christians first Corinthians chapter uh, 3 verse 16 another key verse that we look at with regard to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 uh, says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if you want to flip over a couple of chapters, a parallel verse, he reiterates it over in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse uh, 19 says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So the concept there that Paul reiterates to 1 Corinthians, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6, is that our bodies are a temple of God where God dwells within us. And so the emphasis there of God being with us and the Spirit of God dwelling within us is seen. A quick little differentiation, which I hope I will be able to get to in this lesson. Uh, the, the word you, by the way, in chapter 3 indicates a plural, a plurality. And so more than likely, Paul was indicating the, the plurality and the congregation, the, the, all the brethren that are in, in Corinth, uh, are inclusively the, the body. Uh, they are inclusively the temple of God. But Conversely, if you look over in chapter 6, the, the Greek word, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I just, I just pretend to know it. Uh, but uh, when you look at what people say about the, uh, the word used in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, there's a different, I have it circled and said that this is singular in form. 
Because that word there for you means that we are individually the temple of God. So, of course, the argument becomes later on, we'll talk about this as we talk about the different views, hopefully, of the indwelling, is the fact that we are individually the temple of God, and that's how we inclusively and conclusively together are also the temple of God. Because without God dwelling uh, with us individually, he could not indwell within the church. Why? Because the people are the church, not the building, right? We're not saying God's going to be here within the building at Dalreda. He's within the church. Well, we've always argued, and of course, you remember that little uh, song as kids that we have, right? And, uh, here's the, the, the church, or here's a steeple, open the door, and here's his people. And the whole idea there is that the people are really the, uh, the, the church. It's not the building that matters. We always talk about going to church. It's really a misnomer, and, and we, we need to try and correct those things when we're teaching our children because we're going to the church building is where we're going. We are the church. And so uh, God dwells within us as a church and he dwells within us as, as a church because he dwells within us as individual members of his church. Uh, there's other passages, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Galatians 4, verse 6, it says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, we've heard that before, talking about the relationship that God has with us as Christians, right? That close relationship. If you ever hear anybody talk about Abba, Father, which I think, Terry, I remember you doing a sermon, I think, about this before, talking about the, the closeness that that phrase indicates, especially uh, in the New Testament and the European, the, the Greek mindset, the idea that the closeness of a relationship. Well, why is there a closeness? Because God has sent his spirit to dwell within our hearts, and so there's an idea, concept that, that shows the reality of the indwelling within Christians. And then real quickly, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. And I know I'm flying through this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And so Paul, of course, admonishing Timothy as a young preacher there to uh, make sure and guard uh, the treasure which has been entrusted. Now, what is the treasure? Well, it's going to be the word. It's going to be the teachings. It's going to be the doctrine that Paul has imparted upon Timothy. Those things which he's learned from his youth, it says there earlier on in the books of uh, the, the, the first letter to Timothy. Uh, those things which he is guarding, how is he guarding it? He is guarding it, it says there, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So, Really what I wanted to, to really indicate to you at the outset here, there's really no dispute that the Holy Spirit dwells within Christians. There really, I think if you read any, any doctrinal, arc, you know, people who are, who are in the, of the, I would say, overarching Christian type faith uh, out there, any of the, uh, the Catholic, if you get into the Protestant, uh, and then you look at those members of the Lord's church, Everybody's going to pretty much agree that there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's not really, that's not debated. So I really wanted to speed through that because it's really not debated because it's pretty apparent. We read multiple scriptures that are pretty apparent that, that, that God or God's Spirit dwells within us. The question really becomes is how does he dwell within us? And uh, so that's usually becomes the question. Real quick, before we get into the different theories, I want, to, I want to breeze through these, which I think that they are actually in your handout for you. Uh, a couple of distinctions of the indwelling that I want to point out to you. Some things that the indwelling is not. 
indwelling is not. The indwelling is different than the incarnation of Christ. And so it is not right to claim that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the same as when God was in the man Christ Jesus. They're different. Uh, they're different because of, of many different reasons, but really the, the idea there is the physical difference. Uh, incarnation was spiritual coming in form of flesh. Look at John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. Uh, there's no indication that the Holy Spirit was going to become in a fleshly form necessarily. And so it's different uh, with regard to the indwelling. You cannot necessarily equate the two. Uh, Christ came in bodily form. The Holy Spirit did not come in bodily form. There's no indication that he was going to come in bodily form, and there's no proof that he ever has. And so you see in scriptures here, there is a distinctive difference between incarnation of Christ versus the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's also different than the omnipresence of God. It's not the same thing uh, as the indwelling. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. You see in uh, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10, uh, because the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, God is, is part, or, or the Holy Spirit is part of the deity we would say would be God. And again, it gets in that really murky concept of spiritual versus physical mindset that we have in this world of trying to understand how three become one and three are one without being divisive in any way, form, or fashion. But God is three in one. Uh, God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A lot of times when you read in the scriptures the word God, it's not clear all the time with re respect to saying, is there a distinctive personality ascribing to this, this fact or is it just God is, as being God? Uh, and so here, when you think about God being everywhere, the Spirit is part of that. The Spirit is omnipresent as well, uh, but it's different than the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers. He's present in a different way uh, to those who obey. You look in Acts chapter 5, verse 32, and you're going to see a distinctive difference. Uh, the fact that believers have a special presence that is ascribed to believers versus those who may not be believers. So the presence of the Spirit is still there, yet the presence is not the same for those who are non-believers to those who are believers. Now again, we're getting pretty deep, I know. Uh, and I want to touch and go on this concept. But the idea of the indwelling of the Spirit is being particularly set aside for those who are believers in Christ Jesus versus the Holy Spirit being omnipresent in the world around us, even among those who might be non-believers. He is not as active in their lives. He's not working in their lives like he would be under believers. That's what the scriptures talk about. They have not received the same gift of the Holy Spirit uh, that New Testament Christians may receive. And so what you see there is a distinctive difference there between the omnipresence of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Third, Spiritual gifts are not equivalent or the same as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about the idea that there is a difference between the miraculous and non-miraculous. Or what we talked about as being the extraordinary and the ordinary uh, with regard to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit promised by Peter the day of Pentecost for all those who believe and those who are far off would still arguably stand today. However, there is not a need or a necessity for the miraculous any longer. And so spiritual gifts... Uh, are not the, exactly the same as the indwelling. Now, you could argue, though, that spiritual gifts come along because of the indwelling, but they're not necessarily equivalent. And I hope that makes kind of sense there with regard to it. They were other miraculous, while the, the indwelling uh, is actually what I would argue saying the indwelling is the ordinary 
measure of the Holy Spirit. And you could say it would be, I guess, the gift of the Holy Spirit in ordinary form, if you want to say it that way. But it's not the same as the, these miraculous spiritual gifts that we try to, we see in the scriptures and all these things that the apostles were able to do in the first century, uh, things that Christ was able to perform while he had the, the Spirit uh, within him on this earth. Uh, those miracles that were performed uh, cannot be equivalent to uh, being, uh, having the Spirit indwelling within us. And finally, the, the Bible is not the same as the indwelling. Now, this is where we're starting. I'm going to make sure I use my words correctly here. Uh, a lot of people, and we're going to get into the arguments. We should be able to get through at least them quickly. Uh, one of the arguments is that the, the Spirit indwells within us by the Word of God only. And that's one. That's Guy and Woods' take on this. Uh, it's, uh, many faithful brethren take, this, uh, take that same stance with regard to what the indwelling or how the indwelling occurs is by the Word of God only. Before we get to that argument, though, just keep this in mind. The indwelling itself is not the same as the Word of God. And the, way, the reason I say that is because the Word of God is not the Holy Spirit. The, the Word of God is actually what the, the Spirit breathed. The, the Word of God is the product from the Spirit. And so we're not saying this is the Holy Spirit. Okay, this is from the Holy Spirit. It's inspired by the Spirit. There's no doubt about that one way or another. Uh, but this is not necessarily the Spirit of God. So when you have your Bible with you, you're not saying I'm carrying the Spirit with me. Okay, now we're carrying the sword of the Spirit, which is a good way to, to kind of argue and think about that concept. Our word of God is called the sword of the Spirit, right? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, 17 talks about us being armed with the sword of the Spirit. And so it is a mechanism, it is a, a tool, it is a, something to be used, and it is from the Spirit. But the word of God is not equivalent to being the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is something different, something much better, much greater than even the written words that we have on the pages of God's Word. Uh, the idea of being the, um, so the, the Spirit being or using uh, the Word of God to convey things to us is important. Much like a soldier on the battlefield would be armed with some kind of tool or some type of a weapon, uh, you know, the sword uh, maybe his instrument in that fight. Same way today, the sword of the Spirit is still going to be our instrument. It comes from the, the, the God, uh, the only God that we have. It, it, is, it is inspired for our edification and our use and our ability to be able to go out in there and fight against Satan and go against sin and be able to teach and preach all those things which we need to know. What we need for life, liberty, godliness, it's all right here, right? So the Spirit's given us the equipment we need but the Bible is not equivalent to being the Spirit of God. I hope that makes sense and conveys to you. And again, some uh, argue, and we're going to talk about that later on, that the indwelling of the Spirit is nothing more than the presence of the Word of God in one's mind or memory. And of course, this falls short because the Word of God is not all there is to the Spirit. It is part of what the Spirit has given us. It is part of, of what the Spirit has done for us. Because if you think the Spirit uh, did a lot more things than what we necessarily have today with regard to just His Word of God. It, it, it accomplishes the same purpose and goals, but the, the Word of God uh, is not necessarily the Holy Spirit. It is from the Holy Spirit and given to us for our edification. So I want to try and make those quick points. Any comments before I move on to the different... Uh, we got 15 minutes to go through six different theories. All right. I'm going to go out. Do what? I can do it. I can do it. All right. <laughs> the, uh, 
I'm gonna need some, I'm gonna need some oxygen, I think, after this. Anybody got an oxygen tank I can get a whiff on when I get done? <clears throat> Thankfully, you can listen much faster. So when I'm talking fast, yeah, hopefully it's getting through. If it's not, y'all tell me to stop. But all right, so how does the Holy Spirit dwell? This becomes the crux of the lesson. And unfortunately, we don't have 15 minutes now left of class to try and get through these different types of explanations as to how the Spirit indwells within Christians. It becomes a very difficult thing to explain. And um, it, it becomes somewhat of a nuance, as I said, for Christians to debate. And even faithful gospel men and gospel preachers have disagreed on this topic in the past and exactly how the Spirit indwells. Real quickly, I want to look at four. There's going to be four of them that I think we can pretty much discount uh, with regard to some of the theories tossed out as to how the Holy Spirit indwells within Christians today. First of all, you see on the screen already there, the first explanation is that the Holy Spirit indwells only in our attitudes. Uh, this is suggested by mainly individuals uh, who want to try and discount uh, the uh, supernatural, they want to tr somewhat even deny, I guess, the supernatural effect or uh, importance. Uh, they, they deny that the Holy Spirit, but they agree that one can become good by fashioning his attitudes according to the ideals of the scriptures that are read or that are studied. Some even kind of go into the argument that this is somewhat of an influence. You may see that word used. Uh, it's very much akin to the same concept here is that it's not necessarily um, the Spirit actually directly or being involved in uh, indwelling, but in fact would exert some type of an influence. In fact, there is no real Holy Spirit, but in fact the Spirit of God is more or less equated to His influence over individuals. Well, really that discounts many different points and many different things. Acts chapter 5 verse 32, I think, would, would directly contradict the influence argument and the idea that there is no real Holy Spirit uh, that would be a part of Christians. Uh, it, this, this really just scratches the surface and gives the bare minimum due respect to the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit. That's why this really falls short of explaining or giving us a good concrete reason of how the Spirit would indwell within Christians, primarily because the Holy Spirit is a personality. It goes back to the very first lesson that we talked about in this lesson series is that the Holy Spirit is not an it. This Holy Spirit is not just kind of an influence or just some type of an attitude. The Holy Spirit is actual personality. And the scriptures treat the Spirit as a personality and reveals to us that he is a distinctive personality of God. And so we cannot uh, give him less due than he's deserved. Uh, the second one we look at here is that the Holy Spirit would indwell in the church collectively, but not in members individually. Most actually look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 to argue this view. We've already read that scripture this morning there. The idea that, that you being the plurality, that's the plural you there, you are the temple of God and the spirit dwells within you. And so people say, well, you know, there's, there is an indwelling, but that indwelling only occurs collectively within a, a body of Christ. Uh, within a, a congregation, and so you only have this collective indwelling. Well, as I've already indicated to you, you flip over a couple chapters, and you kind of run amok of this argument, because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 there, verse 19, indicates there it's not just a, a plural you, but there's a singular you that is used there. And so I think logically the argument follows there, as I've already spoken and explained to you, that, that uh, you cannot dwell within uh, a collective body, uh, being the church without dwelling within them individually because you run amok of what the church actually is. And the church is a group of people, not a building. 
And so that concept of, of, of God or his spirit only dwelling within the collective group of the church, uh, I think really falls short of, of describing properly according to scriptures how the spirit dwells uh, in, 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 in the church or in Christians. Uh, it portrays really the spirit more of a puzzle that's only together whenever we're together as a whole. And that's not what the scriptures talk about. That's not the way Paul discussed it in Romans chapter 8. Uh, there's no discussion of that in the other passages of scripture that we spoke about, about the indwelling of the spirit. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 16 would be the only verse you would really be able to look to because of the plural use of the word you there, uh, as he seemed to be talking to the whole congregation at Corinth uh, about the spirit dwelling within them. But the question really arises is if it dwells within them collectively, does that absolutely discount or, or make it impossible for him to, to be able to indwell within them individually. And I think the scriptures say, well, no, it does not necessarily discount that. When we are together, yes, the spirit dwells within us as the church of God. It dwells within us as his church. But it also, as we leave this place, does that mean the spirit just disappears? You know, no, it doesn't. It doesn't make any logical sense when you look at the scriptures. And in fact, if you flip over, 1 Corinthians 6, I think, as I said before, uh, uses the singular pronoun there for being you. And so the, the, the scriptures actually count the idea that the, the spirit dwells within us individually, not necessarily just collectively. You see, thirdly, the third argument that is kind of used to explain how the indwelling occurs is that the spirit dwells by performing miraculous signs. And that's the only way that the indwelling is evidenced is by performing miraculous feats. And of course, this is wrong as we've looked already at these studies and we laid the groundwork for this study uh, going and building up to this lesson today is the miraculous signs were not the only ind indication of the indwelling of Christ. I mean, the ind indwelling of the Spirit. Uh, the, the Spirit's indwelling occurred with regard to miraculous and non-miraculous uh, situations. And our studies have shown, obviously, that the miraculous has ceased because it's accomplished its purposes. We talked about that as we concluded last week. But that doesn't mean that the Spirit stops. It doesn't mean that the Spirit ceases just because the miraculous has ceased because that would be logically the argument, right? That, uh, hey, you know, we've got the Word of God here, so therefore the Spirit has just ceased to, to exist or has ceased to be involved. And that really does not jive necessarily with the scriptures that talk about the spirit continuing to dwell within us as Christians. Uh, and so it does not uh, answer that question properly in accordance with the biblical foundations. The fourth argument I think that we can uh, necessarily discount uh, with regard to the indwelling of the spirit is that the spirit dwells personally and separate from the word of God. And here we're getting a little bit more, uh, I think a little deeper with regard to our discussion a lot of our religious friends are going to believe this is what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means. All right, let me reemphasize. A lot of our religious friends are going to really truly believe this is how the Holy Spirit dwells within Christians. Uh, because it is deeply rooted in what Calvinism is. And the idea that you have a Holy Spirit experience in order to help be proof of your conversion and those kind of concepts there. In fact, uh, the argument really kind of goes to show here with regard to Calvinistic theology is the fact that you can actually understand what it means to be saved, what it means to be a Christian without even having read the Word of God because you have the Spirit acting upon your heart. You probably heard some of those phrases before uh, in the religious world. Brother George. Correct. 
I mean, you know, what you've got to start doing, of course, that breaks down the whole tulip theology, Calvinistic theology there of, of individuals being selected and being predestined on their individuality. Uh, God is not a respecter of person. The gospel is for all. If the gospel's for all, then how can you start saying that only certain individuals are handpicked to be able to have the Spirit come upon them and they in turn are the ones who know what it means to be saved? So the indwelling of the Spirit is explained by some and in fact uh, a lot of in the religious world point to this and say this is how the Spirit dwells in you. You don't have to have the Word of God. You don't, it's not necessary to, in order to have the Spirit. You can actually have the Spirit dwell within us uh, without uh, the Word of God. And what our study of the Spirit has shown is that the Spirit operates only in conjunction with the Word. He never operates apart from the Word of God. Okay, let me reiterate that. The, the Spirit has never operated independently away from the Word of God. It's always in conjunction with the Word of God, right? Because if you think about it, even in Old Testament days, when the Spirit is involved in that, it is always in conjunction with a commandment or something that God has told or conveyed or said. So it may not be written Word of God, but it's always with the Word of God. It is always operating, it is always an operation by the Spirit whenever He is fulfilling and doing and accomplishing those things which the Word of God has established. Does that make sense? So there's always a conjunctiveness that is brought about with regard to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so whether it's now with regard to the Word of God and being the inspired Word, the written Word of God that we have in our disposal today, or whether it was the oral Word of God, the prophetic Word of God, that Word of God conveyed by miraculous means or measures, the Spirit was always done in conjunction and was always used. He always operated in conjunction with the Word. And so this argument here fails to follow the logical conclusion looking at all the biblical evidence we have with regard to the operation of the Holy Spirit, the way he has worked in conjunction with the Word uh, throughout all of time and what we have as an example and teaching for us. In fact, the only way we know about the Spirit is how? The Word of God. Now think about that. You know, how can you logically then argue that you can have the Spirit without the Word of God? You can't, because that's the only way that we have knowledge and know about the Spirit. I think that's a good argument to look at and think and to ask others about, well, how do you even know about the Spirit? You know, if the Spirit is acting and operating on you, you say, how did you even know about the Spirit? Where'd that come from? What came from us? What does the Word say? You can kind of go down that road with regard to the, the conjunctive nature of the operation of the Holy Spirit with and alongside uh, the Word of God. The only way we know about God, uh, the Spirit is through His Word and He operates. Uh, and the only way He operates that we see through the Word is through non-miraculous ways, which would again obviously discount what this argument makes with regard to the Spirit. I don't have time to, to get neck deep into this argument again. You study Calvinism, you study what Baptists and Methodists and other religious groups, organizations kind of couch their beliefs upon. They may not actively perform, they may not actively, I mean, even know about it. To be quite honest, I've talked to some individuals and denominations, and they don't even realize that this is kind of where the foundation kind of lies. But it does when you go back to the very roots of their beliefs and the core system of what their, their, um, their denomination is founded upon. It's the idea that, hey, we can know God's word without actually reading it because we can have the Spirit directly operating on us without the Word of God. Well, that makes no sense whenever you start getting down to that argument, when you start dissecting the rationale behind that, and this one falls short to explain to us in biblical form how the Word of God would dwell within us. Now, real quickly, in the last 
three minutes I've got a class. The two most common and I would say the two most logical arguments that are made, especially among the brotherhood and, and among Christendom with regard to how the Spirit indwells are these two last ways. That the Spirit of God dwells within the word, uh, through the Word of God alone. And then finally, sixthly there, that the, the Spirit of God dwells personally, but in conjunction with the Word of God. And again, if you look, both of these points make a very, very clear statement. When you read any of those who are trying to argue these points, and I believe arguing them correctly, is the idea that the Word of God is still a part of this. You're not dissecting and taking away the Word of God from these arguments here. And so even if, when you get into that sixth argument there, the idea that, that there is a belief that the Spirit still dwells within us personally, but only operates in conjunction with and according to the Word of God which He has inspired, still shows us that there is not some independent action from the Spirit upon our lives without the Word of God. The Word of God is still intricate. It is intrinsically involved with our operation. It is also intrinsically uh, part of how the Spirit would operate into our lives because the Word of God is sufficient. I guess in the all-sufficiency of the Word, by the way. And we're getting into a lot of different tangential type of conversations and studies. But when you think about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit would dwell within us, these last two points are usually made, and I believe argued uh, probably the most con concretely among good brethren, men who, uh, who uh, agree on many, many, many other things. And these two views seem to somewhat clash with regard to it. There's not a dividing line, by the way, a fellowship here, because we're not d disputing whether or not the Spirit dwells within us. Uh, we may dispute maybe over the mechanics necessarily of how the Spirit does, but as long as you're not going outside what the Spirit has given us in His inspired Word to argue and make these arguments, I believe we can still fellowship together because we're not going outside the confines of the Holy Word of God. Now, those other four views, it goes outside the view. I mean, that, those top four, if you, if you start espousing that as the how, we've got some bigger problems because you're going outside of what the Holy Spirit has inspired in the Word with regard to, to how. But because it is not conclusively and concretely explained in the Scriptures of how uh, the Spirit of God dwells within us, those last two arguments uh, would be able to sufficiently argue or, or to explain the how according to Scripture. Now, real quickly, the fifth one, the points made for this argument are this, uh, that the Spirit of God are, uh, indwells through the Word of God alone. Uh, is the fact, of course, we know the Spirit dwells in Christians. Uh, the Scriptures assert that God the Father, Christ the Son, also dwell within Christians. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, 1 John 4, 15. We even read it earlier there in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. The idea and the concept of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and the Holy Spirit all dwelling within Christians. Well, how are we saying they dwell within us? Well, what the Scriptures would indicate according to this argument and, verse, and the fifth argument here is that since God the Father and Christ the Son can't be confided, uh, there cannot be a personal indwelling of them inside of Christians. Consequently, the same references made to the Holy Spirit would also apply as well. You can't divide the Holy Spirit up. And so the, the argument would usually be that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit cannot be a personal dwelling, uh, indwelling of the Spirit because just like God and just like God the Father and God the Son, cannot be divided, the spirit cannot be divided. Uh, Paul settled the discussion, it says, and, and really in verse, uh, Galatians 3, verse 2, when he told the brethren they received the spirit by the hearing of faith. And so you'll see that descriptive uh, phrase used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. This inherently points to the fact that our acceptance and obedience of the gospel leading to salvation is what brings us the spirit of God. Thus it is the word of God which is received in our hearts and dwells within us as Christians. 
And you can look at Romans chapter 10, 17. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so the, the, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, comes into our hearts, dwells within us, and the faith that we espouse because of our, our, our embraced faith and the, the truth of God. Uh, there are a couple of questions and I think some issues that I have with regard to, to saying it's only the Word of God. The primary one that I would look to and, and say that I have a struggle with, uh, with this argument here, is the fact that the Word of God actually can be accepted and be heard by those who are non-Christians. And so if you're saying that the Word of God is the only way in which a Christian can have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then that necessarily argues that those who are non-Christians could actually also have the Holy Spirit dwelling within them if they are reading God's Word and they are studying it. So to me, that's the question that I have with regard to number five in that argument. Uh, now, I understand that there's going to be a lot of arguments and discussions uh, beyond that. I think it, it kind of helps provoke us to a little further discussion in that. But again, the last one, the sixth argument real quickly, of course, is that uh, it understands that the fact that the Spirit dwells in Christians, we agree on that fact. The Scriptures require there, that there is some indwelling because it's not possible for the Word alone to satisfy the things that the Spirit does inside of us. The Spirit was promised after repentance, baptism, and remission of sins. The Word was to be received before salvation or remission of sins. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. Non-Christians can study, they can read the Word of God, they can know it as well as even Christians. Does that mean that they have the Holy Spirit within them? No, it does not. Uh, because Acts chapter 2 verse 38 necessitates the, the indwelling of the Spirit or the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, predicates it upon our obedience to the Scriptures, not just our knowledge of the Scriptures. And so that's the issue that I have there with regard to that. But the, the sixth argument says it's got to be something more than just the, the Word of God. Uh, whether you're saying it's a personal dwelling, uh, personal indwelling is the way it's usually phrased there, or a literal indwelling, some phrases use that as well, of the Spirit. It gives that additional information than just that pure knowledge. Uh, we've run out of time, obviously people are coming in. I hope this spurs you on to thinking and, pro and profit you a little bit about the discussion about the Holy Spirit this quarter. If you have any questions, comments, I'll be glad to study with you. Uh, maybe give you copies of my handouts or, or lessons if you want those as well. Thank you for your attention this quarter.